Morning. Any, anybody from Cleveland? Cleveland? I mean, today's the day to admit it. Today's the day, today's the day to admit if you're from Cleveland. Uh, this is a good week for you, right? Two years, my gosh. What in the world? Two, the longest losing streak in the NFL. Uh, if, uh, if you're from Oklahoma, you've got to give people from Oklahoma, Oklahoma a little bit of love today for Baker Mayfield. So if you're from Cleveland, please find somebody from Oklahoma and give them a big kiss uh, for that. It took, um, took a rookie quarterback to come in. Okay, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about this is us. Uh, so here's just a quick thing what we said last week, just to get us going down the same track together, the same pike, because it's really important, is we said that great theology produces great love. So we have this incredible book that's called the Book of Romans. Like if theologians and PhD and, uh, and, and New Testament literature, if they, most of them would say if I was on a desert, uh, in the desert or on an island somewhere, that'd be the book, because it's filled with the doctrine, the systematic theology right, of what is Christianity. And then you get to this turning point, which is Romans 12, which is what we're studying. And basically it's saying, therefore, in consideration to what Jesus Christ is really all about, to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, because of all that, here's where it leads to. Here's the point of all that. Great theology produces great love. It's really important to pray. And it's incredibly important to go to church, right? Thank you, Jesus, that you're all here. And it's great to avoid sin and read the Bible. But those are supporting cast members to the main thing, and that is to love people. And that is what Romans 12 is really leading us towards. So let's start this way. Have you ever run out of gas? Anybody ever run out of gas? Thank you for the raising your hand. That was brave of you to do. So I had somebody in my house growing up as a kid, and they ran out of gas all over Arlington County, like in the driveway of our, because we were on an incline, so they would pull into the driveway on fumes, and then they couldn't get it started again. I won't tell you who it is and my family, but ran out all over the place. I've never run out of gas, but I tell you what, I came really, 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 really close. So I was driving back from my daughter's college in Pennsylvania. I was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Coming back, she had five friends with her. So we're in the minivan, we're driving back, and, you know, our cars will tell you, you know, 10 miles, you're out of gas, five miles, you're out of gas. I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be places to get gas on the turnpike. And I was just in that stretch where there wasn't one for a long time, and I just started getting really, it was like a bad Seinfeld episode. I just started getting really nervous. Like, oh man, this is going to be so embarrassing if I run out of gas and all Gracie's friends are here. This is going to be absolutely terrible. So I was frustrated. I was nervous. It's going to be a safety issue. Could be right there on the side of the road. And I got all these girls, young girls. And how far am I going to have to go on the turnpike to get, I'm going to have to walk three or four or five miles. So it was just, you know, in the midst of that, my beautiful wife was just so encouraging. She's like, you idiot. Why, why, why didn't you... Why did you stop? Why did you stop to do it? I know I should have. I know I should have. It's terrible. When we run out of gas, things aren't right, right? We're not able to get where we know we need to go. And here's the thing. Here's what psychologists tell us, that we have an emotional tank. And unless that emotional tank is filled, 
We are not living life to the fullest. We're not living life to the max. We're not experiencing all that we can out of life. Our emotional tank has to be filled. And a lot of times we won't even know it. We won't think about it. We won't think about that emotional tank, which comes from great relationships. We won't think about it. But then we'll go and be looking for something or we'll be frustrated about something. And really all along, what we really needed is we needed that emotional tank filled. And that's what today is about. And that's what this rest of the series is about. Last week, we set the direction of it. Now we're going to get into the nitty gritty details of what what it is and how it happens that we have high quality, great relationships to fill our emotional tanks. This is what it's really all about. Jesus put it this way, and we referenced it last week. Love God, love others. What does that mean? The greatest command is to love God. Jesus is basically saying the greatest thing that you could do with your life. Think about this. The greatest thing that you could do with your life is have a high-quality, healthy relationship with God and other people. It's the greatest thing you could possibly do with your life. Harvard put it this way. If you don't believe Jesus, maybe you'll believe Harvard because they're super smart up there. And what they said is the longest study of its kind— ever of its kind, shows that the single greatest determining factor to you living a happy and healthy life is the quality of your relationships. Not, not the degrees you earn, not the amount of money that you make, not all your accomplishments, the quality. That determines your happiness and your health. That's absolutely fascinating. I was reading a Consumer Reports article just recently, and it says for husbands, the better your marriage is, the better your life. The better your marriage is, the better your health. So it just really, and I've stated this before, and there's been so many articles about this. If you're a guy, it just pays to get, all the studies show, if you're a guy and you're married, you're happier and healthier. And you're sexier too, but we, you know, that's another thing, right? But, but, but th- th- those studies are clear. If you're a guy and you move towards a great, have a great, it just benefits you. You're going to make more money. You're going to be happier. You're going to be healthier. All of these things, health and wealth. What else is there besides that? Great relationships, single greatest determining factor. Now, God speaks in Genesis. First two chapters, he's like, yep, that's good. Yep, that's good. Yep, that's good. That's not good. The first negative statement in the entire Bible is spoken by God. It's not good. What's not good? It's not good to be alone. God is saying we need each other. That the Garden of Eden, as incredible it was. So here you got, you got Adam, and he's got the perfect environment. It's just awesome. It's paradise. It's paradise. He's got God and paradise, and God says, no good. That's true. We all know this. Innately, we know this. Because you've been somewhere in your life, and you didn't have somebody that you have a deep, meaningful relationship. You have somebody you love. You have somebody with you, right? And that moment that you experienced or the place that you went that was just so awesome was less than best because you were by yourself. I went on a trip. Uh, I I spoke at a church in Nigeria. And on my way back, the plane stopped to refuel in the Azores, island off the coast of uh, Portugal, right, in the Atlantic. I'd never been there before. We're flying in. Like, oh, my gosh, this place is beautiful. It was so green and so mountainous. It was fantastic. So we refueled. We're there about a couple hours, and they brought this platform up to the side of the plane, and they just let us go and stand out. I'm looking at those green mountains. I could see the ocean from standing there. It was so incredible. You know what? You know the only thing I think about? It's less than best. Because Chris is not with me. It would be so much more meaningful if I had somebody with me that I loved. And that is so true. 
If we are by ourselves, all the accomplishments in the world that we could do, all the degrees and all the money is not what it's meant to be, not what it should be, unless we have an us, another person, to celebrate that with. The greens are greener. The blues are bluer. The mountains are more magnificent. The oceans are more awesome if we have somebody with us to celebrate that with. The transformation from the life that we're currently living to the life that we should be living, the life that God is calling us up to live, the transformation in all that begins with me. It begins with me. Transformation begins with me. And this is what we're going to talk about today, self-awareness, self-discovery. Let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. We're going to get into that pattern in just a moment because it's a very clear pattern. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. What is God's will for your life? Well, it's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone, you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself, notice this, what does it say? Sober judgment. Sober judgment. The alternative to being sober is being drunk. What happens when we're drunk? We're less aware. We're less aware. Many years ago, uh, we were living, actually right down the street from here, and a neighbor of ours, we didn't know him well, but we, we, we knew him by sight. Uh, he got really drunk, and it was the middle of the night, and he was right out in front of our house, and he was blaring music with all the windows down. We were sound asleep, so it didn't wake us up, but it woke somebody up because they called the cops on him. And he was so out of the cops came shining the lights, and by that time, the lights are shining in our windows, so we're all up, you know, what's going on out here, right? Looking out there, and it was like a bad scene from a Cheech and Chong movie. The police officer said, where's your license? And he's like, it's on the back of the car, you know, and he was just stumbling and fumbling. But what happens when we're drunk? We're less aware. When we're sober, we're more aware. This is what's being said here, is that where us begins is self-awareness, self-discovery, who we are. We have to look at ourselves first because the tendency, the pattern of the world is to say, my problem with relationships is all of you right? If all of you would change, then we would be great. And what it says here is step number one, practical step number one, is to look at ourselves and have self-awareness and self-discovery. So, so the psalmist says it this way, who can discern their own errors? Who can? What is the psalmist saying? saying it's really difficult. Human beings have an unlimited capacity at self-deception. We don't see it. We have blind spots. One of the best things that we could do as far as our relationships and having healthier relationships is just go, in, go into any and all relationships knowing I have blind spots. Just that's, that's right out there, right out front. I have blind spots. I'm anticipating my blind spots. I know they're there. So when somebody says something to me about them, I'm not surprised because I know I have them. Because if you reject them, it's never the relationship's never going to be everything that it was meant to be. Here's what Augustine says. He says a prayer. Let me know myself. Do you pray that prayer? Can you pray? That could be one of the greatest things you could do to living a full and, and full and free and awesome life. Life to the max. Kind of a life that is full, full 
so that we can go all the places that God has intended us to go. God, I want to know myself. John Calvin said this, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. The first 11 chapters of Romans is about God and God's love for you and your great need for God, that you're far more loved than you ever imagined, but you're in need of God far more than you ever imagined. You're getting to know God and you're getting to know yourself and how much you need God. And that self-awareness, that self-awareness is going to transform your relationship. Bernard of Clairvaux said this, know yourself and you will have a wholesome fear of God. Know yourself and you will have a wholesome fear of God. Know him and you will also love him. The problem is, everybody, it's a very difficult thing to really understand who we are. And we don't even like to do it. Not only is it hard to do, we don't like to do it. That's not pleasurable. I read a, I read a study recently, college professors. Now, they asked them, are you above average, below average, average? Where are you? Now, the numbers should have panned out. 50% should have said I'm average or below. 50% should have said average or above. You know what they said? 98% of college professors said they were above average. And they're the smartest in the country, right? 98%. 25% of college professors, and I'm sure you had some of these, 25% said they're truly exceptional as a professor. 25%. We're blinded. I mean, those numbers don't make sense. You know what's really cool about that is that numbers are about the same when you look at preachers. They say the same thing. The majority of preachers, we think we're exceptional or we think we're way above average. I have no idea what's wrong with all those other people, why they think they're so good. Uh, but um, I truly am. But uh, do you want to be successful? Do you want to be su- Think about this. Do you want to be successful? Peter Drucker, he's passed away now, but he was a leadership, corporate leadership management guru, right? If you're in the corporate leadership world, then you know the name of Peter Drucker because you've read his books or you've been to his seminars, right? He was, he, he was the guy for a bunch of years. He was really respected and looked up to. And what he says in his analysis is if you want your corporation and you want your leadership, right, you're in, in that corporate world to be successful, then self-awareness and self-discovery is where it begins because it has such a huge role. So this is, this, is, this is what he says. He talks about John Calvin, who I mentioned a quote just a minute ago, and Ignatius of Loyola. And he said those two movements in Europe, they put in place exercises that their followers could have self-discovery and self-awareness on a regular basis. And then he makes a point by saying this. He says, that is the reason why, because of their pursuit of self-awareness and doing that, that is the reason why those two movements were incredibly successful and basically dominated Europe in less than 30 years. That was the key. Some of you maybe have read the book Extreme Ownership by the Navy SEALs. Have you seen that book, Extreme Ownership? They were actually here in town recently to do, uh, to do a two-day seminar here in town. And what these two Navy SEALs guys talk about in this book is they go out and they go to, into the corporate world, and they say, we're going to employ Navy SEAL tactics in your corporate business, right? Whatever you're, we're going to incorporate that. And one of the first things, that stories they tell in the book is talking to a big-time executive, and the executive was very upset, underperformance in a particular area of, of the business, very upset. And the Navy SEAL said, okay, what do you need to change about you? He's like, well, I need to change this and this to get them to do more. He's no, 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 no. Forget everybody else. What do you need? You need to own it yourself. And so what they said in their seminar here in town is that, quote, you need to constantly assess yourself. You know who that makes us think of? Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. 
There's never a bad student. There's only a bad teacher. Teacher. So self-awareness is where us begins. No one's excited about this. No one's going to do cartwheels leaving the auditorium here today and say, oh, yay, I want to assess myself and my own faults. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. Your life is more, can be more, should be more than what it is right now. And it goes to the depth and the quality of the relationships that you have. And all of that begins with self-awareness, a sober self-judgment. Now, do you know the miracle that Jesus did more than any other miracle? You know what you could say just by volume, by matter of volume. If you count up miracles, Jesus did this, he did this, this, by category. You know the one he did more than anything else, which you could say is his favorite miracle? He healed blindness. He opened blind eyes. And you know what that represents in Scripture? Self-discovery, self-awareness. Because when you're blind, you're not aware at all. He talked about, it's a famous story. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've read it somewhere. We like to talk about it because it's so cool because we always think about it in terms of somebody else. But Jesus says, you have a big plank in your eye. Matter of fact, the wording is actually, you have a whole lumber yard in your eye, but you, you can't see the lumber yard, but you can clearly see the what in the other person's eye? See the little speck. It's so clear, that tiny speck that you have to get a, right? You can see it, but the plank in your own eye, you can't see it. What is Jesus saying there? He says, self-awareness. So why did Jesus heal blindness more than else? Because it is the one thing that stands in the way of high-quality relationships. You want to have a great relationship with God? First of all, you have to become self-aware. Romans spends much of its work in the first 11 chapters helping us to be aware of who we are. Because if we want to have a great relationship with God, and then we want to have a great relationship with other people, and we want our lives to be full and free and awesome, good, perfect, and pleasing will of God— has to begin with self-awareness, and that's why he opens blind eyes. Blind eyes. So Jesus has these three good friends, uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, brothers, sisters, right? Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And Martha comes to Jesus one day, and she says, Jesus, Mary, I don't like what she's doing. She's not helping me. Get on her. Change her. She's the problem. Change her. And Jesus famously says, Martha, Martha, You've chosen poorly. You're the one that needs to change. Ah, she didn't want to hear that. One day, a brother came to Jesus and said, uh, you know, Jesus, my brother is greedy, and um, you need to get on him and tell him he needs to change. And Jesus says what? No, actually, you're the greedy person, and you're blinded to all of this. Our eyes need to be open. I was in Atlanta a couple weeks ago. We have a partner church in Atlanta, uh, Georgia, North Point Community Church, and Andy Stanley was speaking to a small group of us, and the pastor there of this church, and he was saying, you know what, it's really important for anybody who's a communicator to, on a regular basis, to watch themselves, to hear and to see what, so that you can, uh, and he says, we don't like to do it because you don't like to hear your voice, and you say, I don't, I don't. I don't, do, I don't do all those strange things with my face, and I don't talk that way, and I don't sound that way. It's painful. It's not really me. But when you see it on video, it's really hard to deny, right? I mean, there it is. And he said, you know what? You're either going to get better or you're going to quit. And it's so true. It's so true. And some of you are thinking, why haven't you quit already? Okay. I, I do it. I watch myself, and it's, it's painful. I haven't really gotten any better, and I am thinking about quitting, but it's, it's so hard. It's so hard to look and have that sober self-awareness. But this is where it begins. I know we want to. So it's so easy to say, it's this, it's that, it's somebody else. But we have to do it. So last week, 
I showed a picture of the treadmill in my house. Some of you might remember it if you were here last week. And our treadmill was just filled with stuff, right? All kinds of junk on the treadmill. So obviously, the treadmill is not being used. And uh, the reason that all that junk is on the treadmill is not being used is we're cleaning out my in-law's house. My father-in-law passed away a year ago, and my mother-in-law can no longer live at the house, and so we're cleaning it out. And so much of that stuff, oh, glorious, is coming to my house. This is just fantastic. So we're bringing all that stuff in, and part of the thing was on the treadmill. Well, I had called a person, a company, and I said, can you come and haul stuff away from my in-law's house? Now, I had thought for sure that I said to the person, I don't need to bag it up. I don't need to box it up, right? You're going to haul it away. And I thought for sure this person on the other line said, yes, that's correct. You don't need to bag. You don't need to box. You don't need to do anything. Walk away. We got it. Now, my wife, who's in the other room listening to that conversation because I'm on speakerphone, says, no, no, that's not what they said. I said, oh, no, that is what they said. I guarantee it because I was clear like three or four times because I wanted to know what the deal was. What do I have to do? She says, no, no, no. That's not really what you said, and that's not what they said. I think we have to bag and box. I said, look, trust me, we're all good. So when the guy arrived, he said, oh, you got to bag and box all this stuff. <laughs> and then Krista reminded me of that. I, 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 here's the thing. That hurts so much. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? When you're wrong and you're like caught, like caught, it's like an, oh, gosh, it was driving me crazy. We need other people to help us be self-aware. It's hard to discover things about ourselves. Now, I want to go back to Romans 12 here, all right? Romans 12 says we should offer. It's very practical, very applicable, very practical. Here it comes. This gets all up in our grills now. You ready for this? Offer your very bodies as a living sacrifice. No, the, the very parts of your bodies. And here's the thing. Back in Romans 3, Paul has already told us there are times when we use our tongue in divisive ways, our lips in divisive ways. You know, our feet run towards things that are divisive. So parts of our body being used to actually break relationships. So now he comes back in Romans 12 and says, take that, what you used to do. Now you're more self-aware. Now you understand the point of all this great theology is love and relationships. You know that's the destination of where you're supposed to be going, right? Take the parts of your body and offer them as a sacrifice. So here's what I want to do. i got four things I want to suggest to you, okay? They're all from John Gottman. John Gottman is a guru of relationships, particularly marital relationships. John Gottman, if you've never heard of him before, read his books. They're fantastic. John got people come to me all the time and say, you know what, do you think, do you think this is the right person for me to marry? I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know. John Gottman can sit a couple down for 15 minutes and watch you interact 15 minutes and predict with an over 90% accuracy rate, he's been doing this for like three or four decades, whether or not you're going to make it or not. Whoa. Check it out. Google or YouTube, some of his stuff. It's incredible. Over 90% accuracy rate in just 15 minutes. He says there's four horsemen to every relationship in a negative way. There's four terrible horsemen. This is taken right out of the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I want to give them to you now, and they go to all of our body parts. You ready? Number one, criticism. For horseman number one is criticism. That's our tongue. We use our tongue in negative ways to criticize people. And he says, you really have to watch that. Are you a critical person? Are you a negative person? If you are, you're going to be breaking down relationships, and the relationship's not going to be everything that it should be, and then your life isn't going to be everything it should be. That's what it ends up in. 
our tongues. The Bible says this, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Now think about this. Think about this, everybody. How many things start and end with the words we speak, right? We can start a relationship or end a relationship with the words we speak. We can start a career or end a career with the words we speak. We can start a marriage or end a marriage. We can start a direction in life or end. We can start a calling or end a calling with the words we speak. I mentioned a minute ago I was down in Atlanta, and uh, this huge, you know, this partner church that we have down there, North Point Community Church, I mean, the place is enormous. I think there's 60,000 people that attend that church every single weekend. And Andy Stanley, who's the pastor of that church, was speaking. He said, you know, uh, years ago when he was just trying to figure out what he was going to do in life, he was teaching a small group of high schoolers, teenagers. And the house that they normally met in to do a little Bible study uh, was being remodeled or something, and they had to go to another house. So he's in a house. He's never been there before. He's never met the family before who's hosting it that night. And he's in the living room, and he's teaching the little, he's teaching the little Bible study, right, to the teenagers. And when he's done, the mother of the house came to him, who he's never met before, and said, you know what? You have a gift for communicating God's word. And he said, that was my call to ministry. And now he is pastoring a church of 60,000 people. We, our words are powerful. You, he didn't even know who she was. Do you think that maybe, maybe you might have spoken something positively or negatively to somebody in, in the course of your life and changed the direction of their life? Do you think that's possible? It was possible in his case. And look at how many people he's affected. Have you possible that maybe you spoke something negatively to somebody you do know and you don't know and actually affected their life in dramatic ways? Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Think about our tongue, so small. James, Jesus' brother, is so small. It's so small. But it's such a powerful effect. You think about how tiny our tongues are. They're small. They're ugly. Tongues are ugly. No one ever says, you have such a handsome tongue. You know, <laughs> handsome tongue, right? You know how many muscles you have in your tongue? Eight. You have eight muscles in your tongue. You know what's unique about the muscles in your tongue? They never get tired. The rest of the muscles in your body get tired. But this muscle right here, it could just keep, it could go all day, all day, flapping away, talking, talking, eating, talking, eating, talking, saying good things, saying bad things. John Gottman says it's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I want you to think about what you're saying. Offer your tongue to God. Say, God, this is, I'm giving my tongue to you. I only want to speak the words you want to speak. Would it make a difference in your relationship? Gottman says, yes, and so does the Bible. Number two, contempt. These are our eyes. When you have contempt for somebody, Gottman actually says when you get to the point of contempt in a relationship, pretty much the relationship's over. And you start rolling your eyes at it some. You can't stand the way they chew their food. Oh, gosh. Can't stand the way they walk. Oh, the way you walk into a room. Jeez. The way they talk. The way they smell. You name it. Everything about them. Like, oh. You roll your eyes. You roll your eyes. And you know what? We get so used to it and we're so irritated with some people, we don't even know we're rolling our eyes, right? We don't even know we're doing it. We need to offer our eyes to God. Number three, defensiveness. Horseman number three is defensiveness. This is our face. Our face. Krista said, you weren't clear with the person from the junk haul away company. And I'm like, What? Yes, I was. My face, my whole face got into the act. What? Because we're defensive. Not me. You heard wrong, right? Whole face. Last one is stonewalling. This involves our entire body. We just turn our body away. Just turn. Ever seen somebody? You've never done it before. But see, you've seen somebody do it. Seen somebody do it. It's the whole body language. The tongue, the eyes, the face, the entire body. Stonewalling. Stonewalling. Well, I want to talk about this scene that I sent out on Friday 
um, on the text. And if you're not getting the text, uh, you can see the steps. To, I forgot to put it on the back of the bulletin, but you can see the steps for doing that either on Grace Live or here on the screen behind me. Powerful scene. Powerful scene. Matter of fact, I sent out a text this morning and, and said, you know, we'll fill in the blank today. The word was me. For those of you who follow me on that text, the word was me. Transformation of the life I should be, leave, be living begins with me. But this scene that I sent out on Friday, the actors say it's probably the most intense scene they've ever done in the series so far. It's powerful, powerful. It was a powerful scene about self-awareness. I, wanna, I just want to go back through that scene a little bit. But I, again, I want to encourage you, please... Please uh, look it up. It's a, it's a fantastic scene. So here's the thing. Kevin, all right, you got Kevin, Kate, and Randall, the three kids. Kevin is in, is in therapy. So he's an alcoholic. He's gotten arrested. He's been sent to therapy. And now he's at this, you know, it's, he's a celebrity superstar stud guy, right? He's tons of money. So he's at a very nice place. Uh, for this. And now they bring in the whole family. So mom is there, Rebecca, and brother Randall, and sister Kate. They're all there. And what comes out in this is a moment of tremendous self-awareness for the mom. So the therapist says to the mom, did you tell the kids that their father was an alcoholic? Did you tell the kids that they might also have the gene? Because here's, here's Kevin. And she's and it's so well acted. Oh my gosh! She sits back and then she says, "No, I did not." Kind of indignant. I did not want to take away the one imperfect part of my perfect husband. And then she says, "Randall didn't have his father when his daughters were born. Kate will not have her father when she gets married." So I didn't want to spoil the memories of their father. And she sits back and holds her head high, and the therapist says, do you think it's interesting that you had specific moments in the life of Randall and Kate, but you mentioned nothing about your son, Kevin? And she says, what? All of a sudden, light bulbs are going off. They're going off. See, for Kevin, for most of his life, the father put his attention on the daughter, and if you ever watch the pool scene, when they're at the pool together, you see something terrible happens to Kate. Some girls write a very, very ugly note to her. And it's, I mean, it just makes you want to cry about her weight. And you see that Randall, because of his, he's African-American and a white family, you know, he's counting up all the African-American people that he sees around him. And so the mom is really concerned about him. Kevin the good-looking superstar stud athlete who's in the limelight all the time is in the pool and almost drowns because nobody's paying attention to him. And it might seem crazy that nobody's paying attention to him, but nobody's paying attention to him. And he's hurt deeply by that. So Kevin says, he speaks up and he says, no, I don't find it interesting at all. That's just the way it is. So I think the mom had a moment of tremendous self-awareness. Now Kevin's got a big moment of self-awareness too. Because... He begins to call her out on that, and he says, why don't you just say it, Mom? You love Randall more. Why don't you just admit it? Because this is where you admit it. And finally, she's so flustered. She's just screaming. She's crying, and she says, no, but it's just easier. It was just easier with him because he wasn't angry at me for no reason, which Kevin always was. He didn't abandon me. 
when his father died as Kevin did. He didn't recoil every time I touched him, and now Kevin has a huge moment of self-awareness himself. What is the end result of all that self-awareness, of all that pain, of going through that self-awareness? One of the ending scenes of that, of that episode was is there Kevin, Kate, and Randall sitting on a bench together, kind of bonding with each other. Listen, everybody, it's tremendously painful to be honest about who we are and to become self-aware, but it is the pathway to deeper relationships, and deeper relationships make life worth living. It's hard, but if you want to max out your life and live life to the fullest, like Christ is calling all of us to do, then we have to become self-aware about who we are. The Father did this. I mentioned last week that Jack Pearson in this series, he's an alcoholic. When the kids are young, he says, I can stop drinking for you, Rebecca. But he doesn't tell anybody about it. He doesn't join AA. He doesn't confess it to the family. He does none of that. Later, the kids are teenagers. They're 17 years old. This time around, he's an alcoholic again. This time, he says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and come out of the closet on this thing. I'm going to tell everybody. He confessed it to his kids. His kids saw him get down on his knees when he had a tough when he had a really tough day, and pray the serenity prayer. God, help me. He goes to AA all the time, right? They know it. He brings them in. And I think that that example that he laid paved the way for that therapy session in which they all became self-aware and were willing to receive it, and the relationship was better, and that's what, make the, that's what makes the series so incredibly powerful, powerful. Jack says, I am alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. This is who I am. And you need to know that. Self-awareness is scary and it's painful, but it's where us begins. I want to give you three things in conclusion that we all need. We need feedback from other people because I have, I know I have blinders. That means all of us in this room, we all have blinders. We need to go into every relationship and every, all, all about life. We need to go in knowing that this is who we are as people. So we invite feedback from three important groups of people. First is God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me. What is all that? So God, search me. I'm asking you to search me. And as you search me and you show me, what is the end result? What is the net result? Everlasting. The way of everlasting. Well, life is going to be good. When? How, John? When I become more self-aware of who I am. When I invite God to search me. You know, I'm... I'm good with asking God to, to search all of you. I mean, that just, see, that just makes sense to me. That's just easier. It's the way of the world. The, you, the, my problem in life is you. But the, but the pattern that Paul's talking about in Romans 12 that needs to be transformed and switched and my mind renewed is it starts right here. And I say, God, show me how my words and my actions and my face and my tone are causing problems in all of my relationships. Search me. I'll lead me in the way of our last. Okay, second one is God's word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently in the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The Bible is like a mirror, right? We hold it up, and it shows us who we are. And that's how we're to read it. It doesn't show us, oh, yeah, all these people out. I, I'm reading about these people, and I see what all your problems are. It's a mirror to us. Last thing is people. Look what, the Pro what Proverbs says, Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Ha-ha, <laughs> look at that. 
Yeah, it seems right to me. What I did was right. My communication was right. It was the ears of the people who were listening were wrong. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. It's very difficult, very difficult for us to have self-awareness. It's very painful. I want to read you something from this book by John Ortberg. Uh, I have almost every book that John Ortberg has written, and that last spring I, I began to read this book. Uh, it's, it's excellent. The title is, I'd Like You More If You Were More Like Me. I'd like you more if you were more like me. And he talks about, you know, our, our tendency, everybody, when we think about our own faults, our own problems, the self, we want to hide. That's just, we want to cover it up. We want to hide. I don't want you to know because you're going to think less of me and I'm going to think less of me. We think some, somehow it's going to diminish our relationships if we're completely honest. What actually happens, it enhances our relationships, doesn't diminish our relationships. And he, he recounts that in here. I'm just going to read straight from the book because it's, it's, it's so good. He's talking about a friend of his named Rick. So when Ortberg, John Ortberg, was in uh, graduate school studying to be a therapist, he had a friend, his best friend named Rick, who was also married, lived right down the hall from him, who was a great guy, trustworthy guy, high character guy, good friend, great athlete, great therapist, had a great marriage. And so one day he decided to do what he's getting ready to talk about right here. So take a listen. After Rick and I had been friends for about a decade, I decided I would like to try an exercise in intimacy I had never tried before, to confess to him everything I could think of that needed confessing. That's scary. I had just finished writing what folks in AA call a fearless moral inventory. When it was done, I met with Rick and read through everything I had written down. Details on lying, jealousy, lust, anger, pride, and woundedness. Some of them were matter of fact for me, but some were so mortifying that I couldn't look at him while I was reading them. All I could do was focus on the paper. It was his response that slew me. I hadn't really thought about what he might say when I was finished. I was too caught up in my own sense of shame and what I knew would be his lessened opinion of me. He asked me to look up at him, and then he spoke the sentence I'll never forget. John, I've never loved you more than I love you right now. That's really hard to do, everybody. We think it's going to lessen by us becoming self-aware and then sharing that with someone we know and trust, but actually it enhances. It doesn't diminish the relationship at all. I know it's going to be tough to do, but this is where us begins. We are meant for so much more. Now, next week, everybody, here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to ask you a question next week, and we'll begin it right now. Do you have a friend that you can call in the middle of the night and ask for money and then be glad to give it to you? We're going to get you a friend like that next week, okay? Does that sound good? A friend that you can call in the middle of the night and say, yes, I would gladly give you money. Are you a parent? Do you have a child or a child that you love and care for? The single greatest thing that you could possibly do or pray or work towards for your child is what we're going to talk about next week. If you're new or relatively new and you've never been to Grayson 5, my wife and I would love to meet you right over here, right in that section right over here at Grayson 5. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, that you give us this, this plan, this roadmap at how to have a much more fulfilling life, to have an awesome life, and as Jesus, as you said, a life to the fullest. But the beginning point is self-discovery and awareness. Give us the courage, the boldness, and the strength to do what we need to do. In Christ's name.
Amen.